I just want to start with um, appreciation. Really bring that to the front for this precious time together. I'm coming into Sashin carrying a really large bag of gratitude for your practice from my dear friends who are facing some really severe challenges. And I thought I might share that with you if you have any doubt about the importance of what you're doing. One of my friends is a mother watching her grown child become a child because they have a severe brain cancer. Another friend is a beautiful Japanese classical dancer who is dying of ovarian cancer. And so she's so skinny, she can't stand up. And there's a father with small children who has no kidneys, is on dialysis, and has just got another diagnosis that his cancer has spread. And then there's a Zen practitioner who is now wheelchair bound. And his great sorrow is that he can't sit Sushin. What's interesting is that some of them have sat Sushin, but some of them haven't and don't even want to. But Sushin is still a lifeline for them. They are really interested when I do this. So it's really made me reflect, what are we doing here that's so important? What's so riveting about stillness? People even peer into the live stream just to see you sitting still. I like to explore this question both in dance and in the Zendo. I think this is a question to really sit with. What are you doing here? Why are you staying? What's precious about this? And I would suggest that it might be a question, especially on a long session, that you want to ask yourself every morning. So when I ask myself, what are we doing here? One image that came to my mind was a famous image from Hindu mythology called the churning of the milk ocean. And this is an interesting image of gods and demons working together on either side of a large snake named Vasuki. It's kind of like a tug of war, but they're actually churning and in this relationship of churning between gods and demons, all kinds of 
miraculous things emerge. There's the goddess of good fortune, Lakshmi. There's a wish-fulfilling tree. There's a life-giving cow. And of course, there's poison as well. In this view, churning is an ancient activity with lots of energy behind it. This is the deep self-inquiry part of this question, this practice. Who are you? I think this is what we're doing here on some level. The other beautiful thing that we're doing here is responding. So we've all responded somehow to the calling of spiritual life. Recently, I was reading a story with my nephew, the story of the princess and the pea. So I don't know if you know this, but despite all kinds of plush bed sheets, very nice thick mattresses, the princess is unable to sleep. She feels the grating of this pea. She has this sensitivity. I think that despite the endless diversions and distractions, we also find ourselves here. We seem to have been able to hear the calling, this sweet, sweetest of sounds. In the devotional literature, in the bhakti literature of the Indian tradition, they call this the sound of Krishna's flute. It's a completely captivating melody. People shed their lives for it. They get moved in unusual ways. People hear something that makes them step out of their usual framework. They call it a turning vibration, and it's made together. Blowing through this flute is breath, connective breath, one breath. So thank you for being careful with your breath understanding it's precious, not just your life, but everyone's life is affected by how you're breathing. Personally, I find it helpful to experience Zazen as a devotional practice. What I mean by that is make it vividly a practice of connection and love. It's also a practice of surrender and invocation. 
It is visceral, bodies sharing breath, energetic. You can ask for help. In a devotional practice, our constellation of relationship is much wider. Perhaps your sources of support are immeasurable. Please understand that whatever you are doing here, it is undeniably worthwhile. And each of us is valuable in this beautiful mandala. Today I'd like to continue with the sharing of Bodhidharma's text called Two Entrances and Four Practices. This is the text that is being focused on by the Zen community of Oregon uh, this year for Ango. It's a really short text, just a few paragraphs but extraordinary, pithy, wise, completely to the point. But before I begin, I want to explore again, who is Bodhidharma? You know, he is the great ancestor of the Zen tradition from the fifth or sixth century who brought Chan Buddhism from India to China. We know that he is a determined person, disinterested in rituals, in philosophy, very interested in Zazen. He could sit forever in front of a wall, apparently for nine years. That's a long time. He was a true shramana, meaning one who exerts great effort. And probably we've all been struck by his eyes. They are wide and open and penetrating. I think the more interesting question for me is, who is Bodhidharma for me? What catches your attention about him? Do you notice that he is a traveler to a foreign land? What would that be like? What do you see in those big eyes? Are they fierce, determined? Do you feel seen? I've always found something curious and interesting in his gaze, even juicy. That doesn't really gel with staring at a wall. 
But that's probably because I've always viewed him as coming from the same village where my dance training bloomed in South India, which is an interesting coincidence. So when I see his eyes, I see the eyes of my dance teachers. Trained eyes, practiced in gazes, intensities, eyes that have developed a muscle group, eyes that have a choice what they pick up and what they let go. This makes me think about the teacher Ajahn Sumedho's uh, wonderful teaching about letting go. He'd been working on this concept for a long time, really not understanding this refrain that's used over and over in practice, just let go. And he had an insight simply by taking something in his hand. You can do that. Take your hand and squeeze it. You can imagine that you have a ball in your hand. And then he just simply released. And he realized that that didn't mean that he was dropping anything, putting it down, being disengaged. He was simply releasing the stress, the holding, the tight grasp. We do this with every part of our body. So I think Bodhidharma is teaching us something with his eyes. Maybe we could take a moment, you don't have to be self-conscious about this, to get in touch with your eyes as a muscle group. A place of attention, but a place of holding. So if you pick two points on either side of yourself and just move your eyes back and forth, see if you can do that. Side to side. Can you look up and down? Can you look in circles? Can you feel the mobility in your eyes? Now can you make your focus soft? Can you make your focus intense? What does it mean to keep custody of your eyes? What's a wide gaze? Practicing like this sets a framework. Attention without tension. Bodhidharma eyes. And in Zazen, this is what we are doing with every part of our body. This makes practice interesting. So through those amazing eyes, Bodhidharma brought forth a text 
with the title, Two Entrances and Four Practices. This title is interesting in itself because it brings up this interesting presumption in spiritual life that we are going somewhere, changing location, doing something, entrances and practices. Maybe we feel this is the wrong room and that's the right room. Or we want to go through that door and not this one. Maybe even if the door is obviously open, we turn away. Or maybe we keep banging on a closed door. What calls us to a new door? I often wonder, why did Siddhartha Gautama decide to journey out of the palace in the first place? Was he bored, curious? What was the motivation? The first line of this text says, to enter the great way, there are many paths, but essentially they are of two means, by principle, and by practice. Very kindly, Bodhidharma has boiled all the options down to this, principle and practice. He doesn't say this, but for me, it seems that principle could have a little sign on the entrance saying a more monastic, approach or an orientation towards meditation and the other entrance may be a more lay orientation an orientation towards our daily lives so what is the first means the principle this is defined by bodhidharma simply as the faith that all sentient beings have the same nature. And he very clearly states, the experience of this is non-discriminative, it's still, and it is in alignment with Wu Wei, meaning the flow. It's a state of alignment. However, if this is not your experience when you sit, he suggests some things to do very clearly again. First, you can relinquish the false and turn to the true. Simply get rid of fixed beliefs, stories, conclusions, and turn towards the direct experience of body and breath. 
his second piece of advice is fix the mind in wall meditation. So concentrate, gather the mind, avoid distractions. Thirdly, you can understand that you are not separate because there is no self. He's asking you to investigate the insubstantial and changing nature of our experience. Fourthly, realize the equality of things. He specifically says, there is no difference between mortals and saints. So don't make things big or small. Number five, be unwavering, total commitment, continuous practice, unflagging. Six, don't cling to anything. He says, even the scriptures, even the Dharma. I'll read those again, just briefly. Six, because they're really worth considering. You can relinquish the false and turn to the true. You can fix the mind in wall meditation. You can understand that you are not separate because there is no self. You can realize the equality of things. Be unwavering. Don't cling to anything. This is how one enters through principle. But he is very generous. He provides other means, entering by practice. And he gives four practices which he says encompass all other practices. And can you mention these in his talk? Accepting adversity, adapting to conditions, seeking nothing, and acting in accordance with the Dharma. So, how do we accept adversity? Well, he's really clear about this. He says, we will accept adversity only when we accept that we have been harmful, trivial, created animosity, maligned and harmed others endlessly through countless kalpas, countless time. He's saying, don't be surprised if even though you've lived an upright, good life, misfortune befalls you. Because in this view, we have a long lifespan, countless lives, and karma is indelible. It will always mature.
And he suggests that we face hardship without distress, but with thorough insight. What does that mean? Thorough insight. The clarity that comes from Zazen. Seeing beyond this small view, this small person. His second practice is to adapt to conditions. He says, because our life is being steered by karma, nothing stays when karmic conditions are exhausted. The experience fades. This is true of both joyful experiences and painful experiences. Don't let the mind gain or lose. It must remain unmoved. In this way, you are in harmony with the way, fundamentally in alignment. This is such useful advice when life demands that you have to turn on a dime. I think it's Hoban who said to me that he felt this was the greatest gift of practice, the ability to turn on a dime. The third practice is seek nothing. He says, we crave and form attachments to everything, everywhere. This is called seeking. Isn't that so true? Probably watched your mind do that. So he says, so you should choose reason over convention. Here, I think he means the direct experience of your body and breath over hope. He says, this long sojourn in the triple realm is like living in a burning house. To have a body is to suffer. How can one attain peace? Those who understand this renounce all mundane existence, seize desires, and stop seeking. To seek is to suffer. To seek nothing is bliss. This really reminds me of the moment in the life story of the Buddha when Siddhartha remembers the rose apple tree. I don't know if you're familiar about that, but after so much striving, such uh, extreme ascetic practices. He has a memory, a childhood memory of not seeking, of intense satisfaction.
And the fourth practice is act in accordance with the Dharma. Intrinsic purity. He says, in the Dharma, there are no sentient beings because it is free of the impurities of sentient beings. In the Dharma, there is no self because it is free of the impurities of self. He strongly suggests that we should orient our lives towards the six paramitas, the activity of an enlightened being. And if you don't know what those are, first one is dana, generosity, shila or sila, virtue, the precepts, shanti, which is patience, virya, which is energy, vigor, effort, diligence, dhyana, which is one-pointed concentration, or prajna, wisdom, insight. He says, in order to relinquish delusions, one practices these six perfections. That's what paramita means, perfection. Yet there is nothing that is practiced. This is to act in accordance with the Dharma. What does this mean? One practices these six perfections, yet there is nothing that is practiced. This is to act in accordance with the Dharma. Bodhidharma is unrelenting in asking us this interesting question. Who's practicing? What's moving you? How much can you know? So I'm just going to read those four one more time. Accepting adversity, adapting to conditions, seeking nothing, and acting in accordance with the Dharma. So Bodhidharma gives us two entrances and four practices. But it feels a bit like Santa coming with six presents and we realize there is really only one key to opening them all, and that is faith. For me, this is a text about faith. It asks us, how deep is your faith? It's also a text about the indelible nature of karma, the mystery of our lives. We are simply causes and conditions that we do not know for good and bad. So we suggest very strongly that we be careful with our actions. 
He asks us directly, why do we hold back? This is also a text about alignment. How dedicated are we to alignment? To posture, to sitting upright. How much of our personal agenda are we willing to surrender? This is a text about throwing your whole being into practice and letting go by someone who did just that. You can imagine him carrying goods from India to China and this was something that was precious that he is sharing with us. I'd like to end with a poem from another South Indian luminary, the Saint Namalvar. There's a poem about being overtaken by the god Vishnu. He describes intimacy with Vishnu as a kind of death, being emptied out, filled up, overwhelmed, drowning. Namalvar says, beware, your life is in danger. He came to me sneaked into my body, my breath, consumed me, life and limb. The big-bellied one, not content with all that guzzling on the sevenfold clouds, the seven seas and the seven mountains, and the world that holds them all. Today he entered this nest, this flesh, cleared away all obstacles, all contrary acts, our Lord of the good city of names, whose groves are humming with bees. May we practice like this. May we sink deeper and deeper together. <laughs>